Hey, welcome. Welcome to the Cato Institute for this book forum on the coddling of the American mind, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. Thank you all for coming, and thank you very much to our authors, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, um, for meeting with us this evening to discuss their very interesting new book. Over the past several years, much attention has been paid um, to questions of free speech on college campuses. Um, as speakers have been disinvited and shouted down with more frequency and as more students and professors are um, feeling unwilling to share their views and speak their minds, commentators have been asking what these trends mean for the marketplace of ideas. Um, Indeed, a national survey that we conduct here at the Cato Institute found that a majority of Americans, 58%, including 62% of college students, say that they're afraid to share their political views due to the political climate and for fear of, of offending others. So that's quite a large number of people who are self-censoring. In The Coddling of the American Mind, the book seeks to explain the origins of the current anti-free speech movement and a parallel increase in the rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide. The book highlights three toxic ideas, or untruths. The fir first one, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Always trust your feelings. And life is a battle between good people and evil people. These truths had led to a culture of safetyism and undermined society's ability to create autonomous adults who are prepared for success in a free society. Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt are uniquely positioned to provide a thorough analysis of these ideas and their consequences. So Greg is an attorney and president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, where he works to defend and sustain the individual rights of students and faculty at American colleges and universities. <clears throat> Along with the coddling of the American mind, he is also the author of Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship and the End of American Debate, Freedom from Speech, and Fire's Guide to Free Speech on Campus. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist at New York University's Stern School of Business. His research focuses on the intuitive foundations of morality, and he has previously written The Happiness Hypothesis and The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. John is also a co-founder of Heterodox Academy, a collaboration of nearly 200 professors. 2,000. 2,000 professors who are, that's a big difference, thank you, um, who are working to increase viewpoint diversity and freedom of inquiry in universities. I'm Emily Eakins, I'm a research fellow here at the Cato Institute, and it's my pleasure to invite, to welcome both of our authors here to discuss their book. So to get started, what I notice is that this book is not one of those cynical books about the kids these days. <laughs> this is a book about the state of mental health of America's youth. You make the argument that things actually are changing, that there are certain things that do delineate this youngest generation, generation Gen Z? Gen Z. Mm -hmm. That's actually separate from millennials. On to iGen. Yeah. I'm giving up on it. iGen. <laughs> so I'm part of yeah. the millennial generation. Apparently it's not just about us anymore. Nope. It's now about this new, this new cohort, cohort. Things are changing. Um, and your book is, I think, a very empathetic, empathetic and compassionate approach to you know, 
how can we help um, improve the lives of many of these students who are struggling? Mm -hmm. And the manifestations of those problems we're seeing you know, occur with the form of shutting down speakers, canceling speakers, the kind of proliferation of safe spaces, <coughs> um, concerns about microaggressions. But you take this more compassionate approach about how to help students, and I think that that's really interesting. But I thought to get started, it might be useful for you both to explain kind of the origin story. You know, how did you come to write The Coddling of the American Mind? Uh, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, I started working on college campuses around 2001. Um, I went to law school to be a First Amendment lawyer. Um, I ended up uh, starting at FIRE when it was only about a year and a half old. And already, <laughs> what's that? When it was about when a year. It was, when okay. I, I was one and a half, uh, baby genius. Um, the <laughs> Um, and when I started, even in 2001, the situation for free speech on campus was not great. It was much worse than I thought it, it was going to be. And I, you know, studied censorship going back to the Tudor dynasty. I worked for the ACLU of Northern California. But overwhelmingly, it was administrators um, who were doing the censoring. And there were some real uh, stereotypes, I think, left over from the first culture war, the first great moment of political correctness in, in the 1980s and 1990s that, that led people to believe that really like the drivers of censorship on campus were the students themselves. And that was absolutely not my experience on campus. Um, it was administrators, students were actually the best constituency on free speech for my entire career until 2013, 2014. What happened in the interim was <laughs> I was lucky enough to get extremely depressed um, in the middle of the culture war. It actually was really quite bad. I talk about it in some sort of detail, detail in the book. Um, but what probably, you know, not, not to be melodramatic about it, but really what probably saved my life was cognitive behavioral therapy. And cognitive behavioral therapy, how many people here know, know what cognitive behavioral therapy is? Okay, a decent amount, but not a, not a, not a majority. Um, so cognitive behavioral therapy is a really successful intervention for uh, anxiety and depression. And it's amazing because it's sort of like stoicism applied, um, that essentially you look at your own thoughts and you talk back to them. And you, uh, you're given all these convenient labels for, for types of exaggerated thoughts that make people anxious or depressed. And these include things like catastrophizing, you know, saying to yourself, if, you know, if this date goes badly, I will die alone, you know, is, is a version of catastrophizing. May I just quit Epictetus here? Oh, sure, sure. Okay, what, so, so this is part of what got me into this, I'm sorry to jump ahead, but is I wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis about mm. ancient wisdom. And when Greg said it's stoicism applied, it's stoicism, it's Buddhism, it's almost every ancient wisdom tradition. So here's Epictetus. What really frightens and dismays us is not external events themselves, but the way in which we think about them. It is not the things that disturb us, but our interpretation of their significance. And so I'm learning all of this stuff that's incredibly effective for helping me with these problems I'd had pretty much my entire life. But at the same time, I'm working on college campuses where administrators, you know, demanding free speech zones, demanding new speech codes, seem to be modeling uh, cognitive distortions as if, yeah, by the way, everybody should catastrophize, engage in labeling, engage in overgeneralization, engage in binary thinking. And I'm like, this is crazy. It's as if we're modeling the behaviors of anxious and depressed people to a generation of, of students. And of course, at the time, though, I'm like, well, thank goodness they're not listening. <laughs> and, and that, that, that I, you know, at that point, it didn't seem like the students didn't want anything to do with it. They thought that the universities tended to overreact. It was largely students were fine. But then sometime around 2013, 2014, 
almost seemingly overnight, just right in that semester, we started seeing um, students uh, really acting against freedom of speech and act, d demanding that speakers be, sh be shut down. If they failed in getting them shut down, that they shouted them down. That's when you first started hearing about um, trigger warning policies and microaggression policies, safe spaces, new speech codes. Suddenly, I was, you know, I got sandbagged going on CNN, um, and, and they, uh, they actually had a student there to debate me on disinvitations, which they hadn't told me about. And it's like 6 a.m., and that's kind of not cool to tell you you're going to debate in, into a debate. Although, actually, the funny story there is that um, the student actually first said, well, first of all, I want to thank FIRE for defending me when we got in trouble on campus, but by the way, and I'm like, that's a, that's a great opening. I'm in good shape. Um, so we, we saw this happen, and what was interesting about it was the justification, <coughs> even though censor-happy students are not necessarily like unheard of, the justification was predominantly rooted in medicalization. They were saying that um, this speech will harm me. If the speaker is on campus, it will be it will lead to trauma or it can reignite trauma. And I was listening to this, at least for, from the frame of CBT, I'm like, this is bad medicine. This is this is students actually saying that um, if if I'm a, if if a speaker is allowed to say something on campus that really offends me, I will be permanently harmed. As if the best thing you could do to overcome your fear is to have the entire world never let you talk about your fear ever again. Um, so this just didn't seem right, and it seemed to kind of like play into the CBT theory. So I um, became friends with John about a year before, uh, and we went and had uh, a, a lunch at an Indian place, and I. I, I Talk to him about this theory, um, and John can take it from there. So uh, Greg came to me with this idea that um, students were beginning to engage in the very cognitive distortions that Greg had learned not to do. And I had just begun to see this. I'm a professor at New York University in the business school. And even though my students are a little older, um, I'd begun to see this in a few of them, and then uh, been reading about all these trends going on. And I thought, I thought his psychological insight was just brilliant. I thought this, this really could explain it. It was a very creative idea. And so we wrote up this, uh, the, we wrote up our, our thoughts, we, uh, we worked it out, really linking them to cognitive therapy, published our article in The Atlantic in August of 2015. Some people said we were cherry picking, we were talking about anecdotes, and that's true, we were. Um, there were a bunch of very strange events happening and we connected them together with the theory and it was very speculative. And then all hell broke loose at Halloween and proved us righter than we've ever been about anything else in our lives. Um, <laughs> And uh, so beginning at Yale, the, in, 20, in <laughs> Halloween 2015, there were protests at Yale over the possibility. Nobody actually wore a bad costume, but somebody might have. And so there were, uh, there was letters about that in protests. Um, and then that ex just accelerated. There were a lot of other trends that accelerated. Many of you have seen the videos of students shouting at professors and cursing at them, um, circling them around them and insulting them. Um, now, but what I want to really make clear, though, is... Um, so let me just, I'll just put a couple things on the table that I think help us tell, tell the story. Um, so one is that it looks like, so we have to realize, we're in the middle of a culture war in which if you get your news from anything on the right, then you'll, you'll hear that either students have lost their mind or kids these days, um, or a phrase, you use the phrase, the anti-free speech movement. Now that's what it looks like, but there is no anti-free speech movement. Rather what's happening is if you look at survey data, Cato's collected a lot of it, everybody supports free speech. Every group, a majority, thinks free speech is important. But what happens is if you ever ask a question, well, what about speech that would offend members of certain minority groups? Then young people, and by that I don't mean millennials, I mean Gen Z, this is very important, 
People born after 1995 are really different from the millennials. We didn't know this until two years ago. We all thought the millennials went up to like birth year 2000 or so. We all thought that college students were millennials back in 2015, but they're not. It's now clear from behavioral data, kids born after 1995 behavioral are very different, much less likely than millennials or anyone in the past to not, they don't get driver's licenses nearly as much. They don't need them because they don't go out very much. They don't drink, they don't go out on dates, they don't have sex as much. They're mostly sitting at home on their bed with their devices communicating with each other and mutually shaming each other. That's an exaggeration. <laughs> That's all they do. <clears throat> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the point is, adolescence, adolescence for kids born after 1995 is very different. This is not their fault. A variety of things came together so that their childhood is very different than people born before 1995. Um, and so the most important fact, the, the fact that makes us confident that there really is something here, this is not just a, you know, a moral panic, is the, the data on anxiety, depression, and suicide. So I, let me just put that out there because this is like gigantic thing that we have to you know, deal with and, and figure out what's going on. Um, so it's, it's, it's always the case that uh, young women have more, it's called internalizing disorders. That is, they make themselves miserable, anxiety, depression, cutting their wrists, things like that. Those are more teenage girl things. Um, so the rates are always higher for those things for girls than boys. Boys have more what are called externalizing disorders. That is, they make other people miserable. So it's alcoholism, antisocial behavior, violence. Um, so, but, if, but in terms of depression and anxiety, the rates for girls are you know, here and the rates for boys are here. And it was fairly stable for, for you know, decades. I mean, there's some slight increases over time over the decades. But suddenly, all the graphs around 2010, 2011, all the graphs go way up for girls and up somewhat for boys. And um, uh, this is, these are self-reports of anxiety and depression and symptom checklists. And some people have said, oh, well, this is just their labeling. They're just, they're very comfortable calling themselves depressed because they were raised with therapy. Um, but that's not true because the data on hospital admissions is the same thing. Hospital admissions for cutting your body, for making yourself bleed to the point where you have to be hospitalized, shows exactly the same trend. It's up especially for girls age 11 to 14. Not that they do it the most, but that they're increased. They used to never do that. And now 11 to 14-year-old girls are beginning to cut themselves to the point where they have to be hospitalized. The depression date is the most scary of all. Um, the rate for boys, if you take the 2001 to 2010, the average rate is fairly stable. But you take, this is a CDC data, and you compare, and it begins to go up around 2010, 2011. Um, it's up 25% in the last two years compared to the suicide rate. The suicide rate is up 25%, which is a very large increase um, for boys. For girls, it is up 70%. Yeah. So we didn't know this when we were writing our article in 2014, 2015. We heard stories about anxiety and depression, but we couldn't find nationally representative data because there's several year delay between events and it showing up in a, in a published report. Um, but now, all over the country, at colleges all over the country, there's a mental health crisis. Um, so this is a big part of the story. It's not that the young generation are snowflakes or weak or fragile, but there are many more of them who are. So most are doing fine. But on a college campus, so Greg began to notice in 2013, 2014, suddenly there's this new language that if this person is allowed to speak, it will be traumatizing, damaging. Well, there are a lot more anxious, depressed, and suicidal students on campus because iGen, or Gen Z, they first arrive on campus in September of 2013, and that's exactly when things began to change. So something is going on here. It's affecting the mental health of iGen, not millennials, but iGen or Gen Z, same thing. 
come. And it has enormous ramifications for what we do on campus because now we're in a gotcha kind of climate where some people are policing our, our speech to the point where we're, we're walking on eggshells, teaching on eggshells. Um, that's really the key thing to keep your eye on. The shoutdowns are big and dramatic, but there's not that many of them. It's the everyday little, it's the little self-censorship that we do. So just two very brief examples so you get a sense of what's going on, then I'll pass it back to, to Emily. Um, so I, now I get all these stories. People, I wish we'd include these in the book, but people are mailing me all these stories. A friend of mine, her daughter was at, is at Claremont McKenna College. She and her friends are walking along on a sidewalk, and one of them says, wow, I'm starving. And her friends call her out for that. It's really insensitive, because there are actually people starving. Um, another one, this also happens to be at Claremont McKenna, but believe me, this is happening everywhere. Uh, De Deborah Mashik, who now runs Heterodox Academy, was a, a professor at Harvey Mudd College. And she said, one of her students, this is a male student this time, comes in to see her, they're talking, and he says, oh yeah, that's a good idea, because that, that would kill two birds with, and he stops himself. And she says, what, were you, were you gonna say two birds with one stone? And he said, well, yes, but that would be violent. <laughs> and so, but the point is the self-policing. That student, that if you're born after 1995, you were raised in a world of social media where there are people in your network who get enormous social prestige for calling you out for your insensitivity to victim groups, oppressed groups. And if you can imagine, I mean, it's tough enough to be an adolescent. If you have some, it's not most of them, but there are some people that's their mission in life, is to get points for themselves by calling you out. And they do this to, so the data shows that students are afraid mostly of other students and professors are afraid of other students. I teach very defensively at NYU because any single word of the thousands of words I say during a class, if a single word offends a single student, there's a number in every bathroom at NYU, there's a sign telling them how to report me. So not that I'll be fired, I have tenure, but I will be investigated. And that is a real pain. It just takes a long time. It's really annoying. And so I just don't bother getting into anything controversial. I don't try to be provocative. Here I can be provocative because you can't do anything to me. But my, <laughs> students, my students, I can't risk offending them. It yeah. is recorded. <laughs> yeah. I hope it's not shown at NYU. Okay, so you've, made, you've, made, you've provided data that show us that there has been a marketed change in mental health statistics, and particularly the rates on ho hospitalization and increasing mm, suicide, suicide yeah, attempts. Those that, are behavioral. That's concrete, it's not anecdotal, and we can see the trend, and it's supportive it's big. of- It's yes. big, It's big, and it's supportive of the anecdotes. Now, in your book, you say that there's a couple of, there's many, there's six threads, right, that, that kind yep. of go into this, but one in particular you were that you, you spent a lot of time talking about is the role of social media and its, mm -hmm. its impact particularly on young women um, so can you go into go into that a little bit more? Uh, yeah, we, we both, it's such an important theme. We, we can definitely both talk about it. Social media, it, it's not news that social media plays a, a major role here, but how, um, how much effect it has uh, was actually kind of surprising to us. I was definitely, I, I, I still in some ways, a little, kind of a techno-optimist. Um, but definitely for two of the threads uh, that we talk about in the book, it uh, plays a very important role. So um, Jean Twenge published a book called iGen, um, which talks with, with the way she refers to Gen Z, people born 1995 or after. Um, and in it, she proves, she shows very convincingly that social media use is, um, and particularly when you correlate it to how much time people spend on it and how isolated they are by it, that there's a, that there is a correlation between that and depression. It just doesn't explain quite enough of the variance. But at the same time, 
um, social media also plays into another um, major factor we see in this, which is polarization. Because, you know, there are great books, but both written by, you know, um, there's a, the big sort that we live in, communities that are more physically isolated from people who vote differently than us. And then Charles Murray did uh, further research showing that it's even right down to the city block um, that we, we actually have less physical access to people we disagree with now. But we also have this system, particularly Twitter and Facebook, that essentially pats you on the back for how thick you can make your echo chamber. Um, and this, this is having consequences both for mental health and polarization that um, some of us kind of saw coming but ended up being much more dramatic than we thought. Yeah, just to, to explain a little further, how, why, why does it affect girls more than boys? That's the, the big question. Um, and so there's you know, enormous amounts of research on how kids use their devices. Uh, and you know, what, what has been found, and anybody who has a son knows this, that as soon as boys get their hands on, on a device, what do they do? What do they spend hours and hours doing? Video games. Well, it turns out video games aren't actually that harmful for you. Even if you're, even if you're going around with, with uh, virtual guns killing people, it turns out that that's teamwork because you are actually, my son is actually talking to boys who are sitting in other, in, yep. and, you know, and they're, they're working together to kill people. And so that's actually- <laughs> Virtual you know, people. Yeah, well, that's right. But it's actually learning teamwork and it's social. So the only reason why video games are bad, there's a huge amount of research on video games. I don't want to say they're not bad, but they're not nearly as bad as we thought 10 or 20 years ago when there was a moral panic about them. The problem is just that they take kids away from face-to-face -face interaction and from exercise outdoors. But the video games themselves are not doing terrible things to their developing psyches. Girls are very different. When boys bully each other, it's all physical. So the fact that they're all connected doesn't change anything. Girls, it's all about relationships. Girls' aggression, it's been known for decades. Girls' aggression is relational. They don't punch each other, they damage each other's relationships. And if you give them all devices and social media, now they have lots of ways to damage each other's relationships. And if you can imagine what it's like, it's hard enough to be a teenage girl anyway. Now you have people saying things that you can't respond to, you don't even know who's saying what, pictures of yourself being doctored and sent around, all kinds of horrible things. You can't, even on weekends, you can't get away. It used to be that on weekends you, were, you couldn't be bullied, but now it's 24-7. So also the social comparison. Girls spend a huge amount of time composing selfies and trying to make themselves look more beautiful and more popular and connected. Uh, and other girls are doing this too. So we've all known for a long time, when girls compare themselves to fashion models, that's fake. Those, girls are, those women are unnaturally beautiful. Well, now it's their friends who are unnaturally beautiful because of the filters that they can apply. So, um, so for teenage girls, getting, getting social media is really damaging. This is why the millennials are okay, because they didn't actually get it until they were in college or later. Mm -hmm. So their, their social nature was already largely formed. So social media has been really damaging. Um, as Greg said, the, the causal, obviously these are correlational studies. The causal evidence, there is some correlational study from data from time lag studies. It's not knockdown, but the timing is absolutely perfect. Um, in other words, if you look at when, you know, kids born in 1995, they can get on Facebook when they are uh, 11, technically, but hardly anyone gets on in 2006. But it's only when social media, when uh, iPhone ownerships begins to saturate the market by 2010, 2011, and social media is very common, that's exactly when things begin to rise. So the, the circumstantial evidence that social media is the, one of the biggest causes. The other thing I'll mention is that the, the call-out culture, that's really the heart of it. The fear of speaking, 
That's the heart of it. And that is really only supercharged by social media because one slip, one slip, and it doesn't just embarrass you within the 20 people who hear it. It really could go national for yeah. all you know. Yeah, and we we, we, retweet, we we retweet call outs like crazy. And it's, it's it's really sad, like when you watch, you know, something that says something untrue but cutting gets 500,000 retweets, right. but the, the correction gets four. Yeah. Right. This actually makes me think about, so I know, John, you're a big fan of Emile Durkheim, uh-huh. a 19th century French sociologist, correct? And can you tell us a little bit about his work and how you think it can help us understand call-out culture? Like, what's actually happening? In particular, I'm thinking about um, an incident with Charles Murray at Middlebury College where the students started chanting kind of, it was like a, a chant. It rhymed and yeah. how get rid of, yeah. I, I actually don't remember how it went, but like, end white supremacy, yeah, Charles Murray, go away. No, racist, sexist, anti-gay, Charles Murray, go away, was <laughs> yes. the chant. Yeah. And I recall yep. y- your reaction to that was, this is almost like kind of a religious ritual. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about what's going on? Yeah. So my second book was called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And it's based on three principles of moral psychology. The third one is morality binds and blinds. And a lot of my research a few years ago was on how did we create these moral communities? Because I'm studying, why are we so polarized? Why does left and right hate each other? Um, Basically, if you see human nature as basically tribal, we evolved to be tribal. Um, Human nature, if you look at the, before the European contact around the world, well, the explorers discovered that all around the world, things look surprisingly similar, despite all the variety uh, the form of religion, the form of ritual, um, painting your body, dancing to rhythmic music around a campfire, it's very, very common. That's sort of the default nature of humanity. You make something sacred, and then it binds you together. So in graduate school, I read Emil Durkheim. One of his classics was Suicide, and others, the elementary forms of the religious life. From Durkheim, I learned to think about not, you know, what are people doing? Like, is it, are they doing this because it's materially good for them? Are they profiting it by it? Well, what people, what people in groups are trying to do is bind themselves together, create a community. And that was his approach to religion. Religion is not about getting yourself advancement in the afterlife. It was really about creating a community, a church in the here and now. And ritual, moving together in synchrony, does this. This is why fraternity initiations have a lot of ritual and moving together in synchrony. And they make something sacred. It might be a beer keg. It might be a, you know, a you know, lady's undergarment. It'll be something that the br- brothers will do like pseudo-religion around. So... What we began seeing in some of these protests um, is religious ritual, spontaneously formed religious ritual. And if you look, so you can go to YouTube and look up Charles Murray protest Middlebury or shout down Middlebury. You see the students, they come, so Charles Murray wrote wrote the bell curve in the 1990s. That's why he is now taboo. Uh, He's a blasphemer. Uh, Again, these are religious words. Uh, But he was going to give a talk at Middlebury College on coming apart, which is one of the most important books people could read when they were trying to understand how Donald Trump had been elected unexpectedly just a few months before. But many students thought he is taboo. He, if he were to speak here, it would be violence. Him speaking about that book would be violence against marginalized students, students of color. Um, and so they, they come to the, the talk. To, they tried to have him disinvited. The, the, the university would not disinvite him. Uh, So they come to his talk, and the instant he starts speaking, they turn their back on him and start reading a prepared statement in unison. It's kind of creepy. But then once they finish the statement, then they just go into these chants, and it goes on for about 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, Finally, Murray and Alison Stanger, who's a professor there, they leave the scene. They go record the 
record the interview or they broadcast, they live stream it. Students find out where that is. They're pounding on the walls. Uh, as Murray and Stenger try to leave, students accost them. Now here there are also some local members of Antifa, so we don't know who committed the violence. But somebody grabs Stenger's hair one way, somebody body checked her, she has a concussion, she still has neck and brain damage today. Um, so this was, the mo this was the second most violent episode after the Berkeley riots. It was an unusual episode. But it, it, all of this makes a lot more sense because a lot of people outside say, what are they doing? Why don't they just not go to the talk? Why is it going to be violence against them? Just don't go. But no, it's a religious ritual. And that is the lens that's very helpful for understanding what, what's going on on campus today. And so those two stories you shared about sticks and stone, or no, it was uh, kill two birds with one stone yeah. where he stops. So yeah. like every time people are kind of policing their own speech or they're calling each other out on Facebook and it kind of right. becomes this downward spiral, it's because it, perhaps they are trying to they're trying to conform to these norms of this new moral community. Mm -hmm. Right, well, it's, well there's, there's two different sociological processes. One is the prestige economy, where an individual gets prestige by calling others out. And this is why it looks like they're eating their own, they're destroying each other. Um, so this is not Durkheimian, this is not group bonding, this is individual prestige. The other process is group bonding by synchronous motion and a shared enemy. I see. So. Greg, I know you've been, um, FIRE has actually been quantifying mm -hmm. these incidents on campus. So I, th I think some critics will say, well, isn't this just anecdotal? I mean, yes, what happened to Charles Murray was a bit extreme, but is that actually, has there been a systematic shift? And so you have a graph in the book yeah. that actually tries to document this. So what did you find? Uh, well, one of the things that we've, uh, we have actually data for is disinvitations, and we try to keep good track of that. And by disinvitations, we mean attempts to get people disinvited. The reason why we go with attempts, not successes, is because if what you're really trying to quantify is student illiberalism, student demand that we not have someone speak at a particular place, it's much more important to know when they try as opposed to, we also keep track of when they succeed, of course, because of the circumstances under which they succeed. And we also keep track of shoutdowns, for example. We started noticing it go up around 2009, um, and that's when you start seeing a real disconnect between uh, liberal students and usually off-campus conservatives demanding that people get disinvited. They actually were relatively com comparable until about 2009, and then it really kind of skyrockets after uh, after 2013. Um, so, uh, and we saw more um, heckler's vetoes than we'd ever seen in the fall of, of 20, uh, 2017, where it's, it's, either, it's either a shout down or a class being disrupted or a speech not being able to go on because, because students are coming. I am trying to figure out other ways to get more data on this. Um, we, we at FIRE, we get about 1,000 case submissions a year, and we, since we promised confidentiality, trying to actually figure out you know, publicly kind of like what, what fits into what, um, uh, what slot uh, it, it is a little bit difficult, but there's a lot more data to be mined out there. But So in some ways, I, I kind of regret that disinvitations has been almost the only data point that people have really been able to point to when there's been so the many other examples. Self-censorship is really the, the, yeah. the bigger thing. The one thing I can add to what Greg said is that some critics uh, um, critics say, oh, come on, even with the disinvitations and the shoutdowns, it's only usually a few. Well, the, the the shoutdowns are, are, not that, are not as common. Uh, it's only a few dozen a year. Yep. They point out there's 4,500 institutions of higher education in this country. And at the great majority of them, nothing is happening. Mm -hmm. There are no shoutdowns. Students go to school. They don't, they're not protesting speakers. So this, it turns out this is especially common in the Northeast, especially New England, and along the coastal strip of the West Coast. Um, I, I used to run a group called Heterodox Academy. We graphed out where the actual shoutdowns occur. Those are the most dramatic. 
almost all of them are in New England and down into New York, uh, and a couple in Maryland or DC, and then right along the Pacific Ocean. So not, not you know, inland Washington State or Oregon, they're all along the Pacific Ocean uh, in basically that, that strip, which basically maps the, onto the electoral map of the country by county because one of, the, one of the causes, one of the contributing causes is political homogeneity. Mm-hmm. If you have a, an environment in which everybody's on the same team, everybody votes the same way, thinks the same way, reality becomes not this complicated thing where there's dissenting opinions, but everybody thinks this, and everybody validates that this person is evil. So, uh, so increasing political polarization combined with poli- the, uh, the uh, political purification of universities since the 1990s, they've gotten much more politically purified on the faculty. That's one of the contributing factors to why things began to explode around 2013, 2014. And locally, uh, we had one of the worst ones at William & Mary, um, I think it was just last year, where they, the shutdown was directed at the ACLU, um, which was kind of ironic because they were there to give a talk on student free speech rights. Now, of course, this was after the Charlottesville um, uh, 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 riots or uh, you know murder. Um, and so, you could, uh, and the ACLU of Virginia had actually defended um, the, the speakers at that, um, but it was this very strange scene to see someone who was clearly there compassionately to try to tell students how not to get shut down and was was herself shut down. But the, the, but this is a perfect example of the conflict of moralities. Mm-hmm. So two things that most of us over forty said when they, we were kids, you could you know repeat you know repeat them with me: sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never harm me. And if you ask kids today, if they hear that, no, nobody says that. And if you do, that's a microaggression. Yeah. That's insensitive to people who have been victims of, of verbal violence. Um, the other thing that, uh, just tell me, tell me if, if this is something that was commonly said when you were a kid. It's a free country. <laughs> yes. Raise your hand if that's something that was said. It's a free country. Nobody says that anymore yeah. um, and my, the, on the playground. And the reason, I think, is because liberty... Uh, the free world, like the 20th century was really all about fighting fascism, communism, totalitarianism, liberty, freedom. Those were big 20th century values. Those are not 21st century values. Kids today have been raised with primary, primarily the values of inclusion, mm-hmm. inclusion, diversity, sensitivity. So those are good values. But when you have a, a, like a one foundation morality, any virtue carried to extremes becomes a vice. And so if you have multiple values, including liberty, of course, if, you know, if all you care about is liberty, I mean, some libertarians seem to take that to extremes. You can take any one <laughs> virtue to extremes. But many kids today, not most, but enough at age school, are taking, I believe, inclusion, sensitivity, and anti-racism to extremes. I mean, obviously, those are good values, but there are other values, and you can't just squash them. You know, I, I researched that phrase, sticks and, st- sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. So that actually came from something that originally said, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never break me. Ah. Oh, and I really okay. like that version because I feel like that gets at the essence of what we're talking about, yes. is that words can hurt our yes. feelings. Oh, yeah. That's, well, that's why you have the mantra in the first place. Right. If, words didn't hurt, if words didn't hurt, that wouldn't even make sense. It's like, oh, of course sticks and stones, words don't harm me. Like, it wouldn't even be necessary to teach children that. But in a culture of dignity, it's right. actually a really useful little mantra to teach kids. Because I remember saying that as a kid, and it's not like... It, I, I've, I've seen so many speakers say, well, now we know sticks and stones isn't true. I'm like, 
don't undervalue how smart we were in the past. This, we, 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 we are, we're arming kids with a way to deal with insults in the real world, which actually could be quite effective if it's, if it's a commonly accepted norm. Yeah, especially if someone were, suppose someone were to invent something where people could say all kinds of nasty things all the time, 24 hours a day, you wouldn't even know who they are, and horrible. you have to live, that would be horrible. Oh. If my kids, if that ever happens, I want my kids to learn. Sticks and stones will <laughs> right. break my, no, my bones, but names will never harm me. Yeah. Because of course it's not literally true, but it's a way of saying, I don't even, you know, I don't care. Go ahead, say whatever, I don't care. Yep. Right, because, you know, they could, hurt, they, they could hurt your feelings, but they won't break you. And I think that that gets to one of the, kind of the central points of your book is this issue of anti-fragility. Yep. So what do we do about kind of the, the increasing rates of anxiety and depression and yeah. the culture of safetyism? Your remedy has to do with this concept of anti-fragility. And I think that you had a, a great story about your son's yeah, son. preschool yeah. that I think really gets at this. Yeah, yeah the book opens up with our, our, the peanut story. So when my son was uh, three years old and my wife and I took him to his first day of preschool in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, the, you, know, you have to go to a meeting where all the parents are, are told the rules of the school. And it just kept going on and on about no nuts. It was like, no nuts, okay, fine. <laughs> no, no fruit, no dried fruit that was made in a factory that produced nuts. You know, it keeps going on and on about snacks of light. <laughs> and so uh, you know, and, and you're sitting in these little tiny chairs and it's really uncomfortable. I'm like, come on already. So I said, uh, excuse me, does anybody here, any parents here, do you have a kid with an allergy? Because, you know, if, if anybody in the class has an allergy, I'm sure we're all going to, you know, going to do what we can. But, like, if there's nobody here, you know, maybe we can just, like, not bring in peanuts. And the teacher was like, no, she, she, she was really upset. She's like, nobody answer that, nobody answer that. These are our rules. These are the rules of school. This is what we're doing. And, and the reason why is because... Peanut allergies are on the rise. They've risen dramatically. They've tripled from their mid from the early '90s to around 2010. The rate tripled. So we better do something about that. We better protect kids from peanuts. Well, why do you think it's rising? Why does it rise? And it only rises in countries that have told pregnant women to avoid peanuts. Yep. Why do you think that is? Because this is the way the immune system works. The immune system requires that we be exposed to things so that the immune system can learn that this thing isn't dangerous. And so if kids are exposed to peanut proteins, it's this, especially in the skin is the main thing that does it, the skin of the peanut. If kids are exposed to it, either through their mother's milk or in utero or as a child, then their immune system says, okay, that's not a problem. But if you shelter your kids from that, just as if you shelter them from bacteria, if you use a lot of bacterial wipes, if you keep your kids free from germs, you are preventing their immune system from developing. The immune system is anti-fragile. A fragile thing, if you knock it, it'll break. An anti-fragile thing, if you don't knock it, it won't develop. And so immune systems are anti-fragile. You have to expose kids. It turns out the mind is anti-fragile. Uh, social relationships are anti-fragile. If, you don't, if your kids are never excluded as children, if you protect them from exclusion as children and they go off to college, they're going to be really harmed by anything that's vaguely like an act of exclusion. So basically the argument is, we have so grossly overprotected our children that we have crippled them. Uh, beginning, and it's beginning in the 90s is when we really did this. We never heard stories in the 80s of parents being arrested because their kids were found walking around outside or playing in a park. But by the early 2000s, those stories became much more common. And so let me just check with you. It's always fun to do this with an audience. The effect is often quite dramatic. Think about, for all of you in the audience here, think about when you were let out. At what age were you let out? 
so that you could walk to a friend's house six blocks away, or you could go to a store and buy a candy bar or whatever, you know, low sugar, whatever or it was. Or a comic book. Comic book, anything. At what it, so if it was first grade, if in first grade you were allowed to go outside without adult supervision, then your answer should be roughly six, okay? If it was fifth grade, your answer should be roughly 10. So just think about your number, what age were you let out, okay? Now, just people who are 40 years old and older, just you, just call it out, yell it out. What's your number? Six. Five or six, we have a four. So it's four or five, mostly, <laughs> but it's mostly five, yeah. I suppose the ones who were let out at three aren't here today to tell the story. <laughs> but five, this is what I always find, five, six, and seven. That's what it always was. Okay, now we don't have a lot of, raise your hand if you're under 25. How many people do you have under 25? Oh, we have enough, okay. Oh, wow. All of you under 25, 25 and under, because you're basically iGen or, um, call out your number. So we do have, look, we have a couple of sixes and sevens, which might be why you're libertarians. <laughs> but okay, raise your hand, just, just you who are under 25, raise your hand if your answer is 10 or above. Raise your hand high. Yeah. Okay? Okay, so there was none in the previous, and raise your hand if your answer was eight or below, those of you in that generation. All right, so more of you had 10 or above than eight and below, but there were, there were a number here. Yeah. When I've done this on college campuses, which is a more representative sample, I get, uh, it's always 10 to 14, some even say 16. Um, one, one woman said, when I was at Case Western, she said six, and we all looked at her, and she said, but that was in the Philippines. The Philippines yeah. Once we moved to America, it was 12. Yeah. That's yeah. so funny. Oh, sorry, go ahead. And yeah, and, and the theme of anti-fragility is, is something that we, you know, we both are a big fan of that book. We recommend it. It's a little wordy. Wait, sorry, there's a book <laughs> called... Nassim Taleb. Called Nassim Taleb, called Anti-Fragile, um, which uh, is an idea that we're excited about. And it's, it's a concept that we really think uh, everyone needs to understand, partially because the only thing that really gets me kind of angry when I think about this, because I try to you know, not, not, not let myself go there too much. When you're, when you're trying to change things, you gotta be persuasive. But it really does anger me to some degree that we're lying to students about how fragile they are. Yeah. And that itself is the harm. That's right. um, and the reason is, is running a clip of, 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 from the book, and they titled it perfectly, basically saying, like, why, we're, we're lying, to, lying to children about how resilient they are. Mm. And if you tell somebody that they are fragile um, and that they'll be easily hurt, um, then it becomes possible that they could. But there's no reason to think that. Everything that we know actually shows that people are much more resilient than we've been led to, led to believe. And we should be celebrating this, not sh shrinking from it. I I think this is one of the most important points you make in your book, and it's when you start describing the social psychology or psychology literature on the locus of control, oh, yeah. which is um, the extent to which we instruct children that the events and things that happen in their lives are within their control versus are they the victims of external circumstances. And the truth is, it's a combination of both, right? It's luck and what you do <clears throat> together. but. There seems to be a lot of research that suggests that emphasizing kind of the internal locus of control, the things that you as an individual have control over, and minimizing the extent to which you are a victim of external circumstances can lead to better health outcomes. Yep, that's, that's right. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot, you know, uh, in Shakespeare, in Hamlet, it's assume a virtue if you have it not, for use almost can change the stamp of nature. Which is, over and over again. That's not exactly the locus control point, but it's over and over again that there's... Make it. Okay, yeah, that's right, <laughs> that's right. So, the, so, you know, many of us on campus think that words matter, and if, you know, if we were to have words, like if you say chairman, as opposed to chairperson, or if we don't use gender-neutral pronouns, we think this might actually have an impact on people. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But how about telling people to identify as a marginalized person? To identify, in a, in a university that is as progressive as could be, 
students are beginning to think of themselves as marginalized. And that's by definition. That's not that something happened to me. That's because of my identity, I am marginalized. Do you think this might impact how they approach their college years? Do you think this might make them feel that maybe people are against me, that things are stacked against me? As opposed to what we talk a lot about in the book is common humanity identity politics. The more, you, the more you make people feel we're all one, we're all in this, we're all human, we're all Yale students or whatever the identity is. Um, so over and over again, what we find in the book is that if you were to follow basic social psychological principles about how to address issues of marginalization, inclusion, and racism, you would do one thing, but on campus we do exactly the opposite. We do exactly the things you would do if you wanted to play up divisions, hostility, and the sense that the world is against you. So what should we, what should we be doing? To, to um, deal with those things in a more healthy, mm-hmm. productive way. Okay, so um, so the campuses that are actively involved in trying to increase diversity, which is almost all of them, as far as I can tell, um, I think what we should be doing is first of all, it takes a lot of leadership, and leadership has to make it clear we're about to do something really hard here. We're going to try to interact with. We've tried to assemble a really diverse class, and that means that you don't. You don't know the norms of people. You don't know their values. Some of them you won't like. They're different from you. If we're going to do this, we have to all do two things. One, we have to learn to be less offensive. We have to learn the stupid things that people say to black students over and over again that are very tiresome. To the extent that the term microaggression has any meaning, I think that's a good one. So we have to learn to be more polite. Everybody has to try this for all the different groups, okay? But at the same time, we have to also try to take less offense. We have to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Because what we've succeeded in doing on campus is trying to get people to be more and more polite and thereby moving the goalpost for what is acceptable eternally. So even though things are so much better on campus for every single identity group than they were 10 or 20 years ago, people seem to be more and more hurt, more and more upset. So what have we done? It's like we're on a conveyor belt. We keep raising, we keep making it go faster and faster. I don't see how any international student could come here. In fact, international students are now beginning to write about this. They come here and they say, I thought this was gonna be a place where there'd be free speech. This place is nuts, I can't say anything here. And I'm coming from China or Singapore. I was expecting, you know. So I think, you know, again, the subtitle of our book is really the message. How good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. It's all about good intentions, but we've gotten ourselves into a knot, which is really bad for students. So I uh, just wanted to just briefly jog back to Locus of Control, partially because it gives me a good opportunity to uh, point out that uh, Pamela Paretsky, who is my chief researcher and ended up being the chief researcher for the book, is in the audience. And that's partially because we talk a lot about Locus of Control. Um, and, it's, and it's an issue that um, when you look at the generation, because to be clear, and we're very clear about this in the book, we're talking about... Um, uh, students who are the kind of people who go to more elite colleges. And the, the, the issues facing more working class people are actually really quite different, but we're mostly focusing on what's going on on, on more elite colleges. Um, but when you look at the way these, ch- these children are raised, and we have to, uh, at least two or three chapters on, on parenting, um, it shouldn't really come to a surprise, and it certainly wouldn't come as a, a surprise to our parents or grandparents, that if you schedule a kid from 6 a.m. to 10, uh, you know, 10 o'clock at night just so they can have all the extracurriculars so that they can get into Stanford or Princeton or Harvard, um, you're undermining their sense of autonomy. You're implicitly telling them, um, whether you know it or not, that they cannot handle their lives themselves. You are doing these kids a tremendous disservice. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, in researching the book, interviewing Julie Lithgott-Hames, who was uh, the dean of freshmen um, at Stanford from 2000 to uh, 2012, um, was so interesting uh, for us. Because she saw a very rapid process by which in 2001, 
nobody was coming to school with their parents, or at least very few people were coming uh, coming to school with their parents on college. Uh, uh, college, yeah. Parents. I mean, the parents dropped them off on the first day. No. Um, and, and she was saying that uh, very, very. I mean, mine didn't. The, the um, <laughs> but she, and she was and she was talking about how over time, increasingly, it wasn't just that they would show up and and, oh, drop, around, yeah. and drop them off and stick around. It's that they would um, the students would actually be calling their parents to help them make oh. all these decisions for them. And no surprise at all, these are students who have no locus of control. They don't think they're competent enough to to run their uh, to run their own lives. And in under those circumstances, you shouldn't be the least bit surprised that these are people who have really high rates of depression and really high rates of anxiety. So this makes me think about um, a poll I conducted a couple of years ago about, um, we asked people what ages they thought a child should be um, before they walk to school by themselves or they go to the park by themselves, stay home alone, cook a meal, Mm -hmm. all those questions. And what I found really interesting is, I should have looked at ages, which I didn't do at the time, but what I did do is look at attitudes about government uh-huh. and those questions. And as it turned out, people that kind of took a more libertarian approach to government, kind of smaller government, things like that, thought that kids should be on average a little bit younger when they start those things. So maybe you're seven when you start work, walking to school alone and people that kind of were on more of the more activist government side thought that kids should be maybe 10 or nine, maybe two years, maybe it was about two years different between the two. And I thought that was so fascinating that there could be a correlation between attitudes about childbearing yeah. and attitudes about public policy. And, and there's several different ways that this could slice. As it turns out, it was like liberals and libertarians. So kind of oh. were, were the wanted kids to be able to do things oh. at a little younger ages. Yeah. And um, and com- conservatives and communitarians defined a little bit differently, wanted kids to be a little bit older when they did things. So there was kind of like a strand on both left and right that thought kids should, should be a little bit younger mm-hmm. when they start these things, um, take on these new responsibilities. So it got me thinking about the role of culture and how important culture is when it comes to kind of later on how that trickles up into public policy. So I was thinking about your work and the implications. Um, what does this have to say about childbearing and, and how parents are raising their kids? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, those were our favorite chapters re- researching for the book. And one thing that we warn a lot about is uh, it, Bradley Manning and, Cam- Manning and Campbell yeah. r- writing about uh, moral dependency. Um, that essentially, if you create a circumstance in which all conflicts are mediated through adults up until, say, you're 14, um, that's training someone for, frankly, not to live in a democracy. That's training them to live in a, in a state in which um, all, all problems uh, are actually brought to uh, brought to the authorities, and this undermines the whole democratic vision. That, that essentially, you know, I'm a lawyer, uh, but you know, I'm very familiar with the idea that that essentially, once you're actually coming to me as a lawyer, we've our, our society has already failed. Um, if we have to litigate it, we've already failed. Now, this is a little bit more of an old fashioned uh, old fashioned belief, um, but the, the and that's one of the reasons why we talk so much about things uh, like free play. Uh, free play is an opportunity uh, for kids to uh, develop the Tocquevillian art of association, where, where they can actually, you know, make the rules for the game, uh, figure it out, and and you, you allow kids the freedom to do this, and they they do it very spontaneously, very naturally. Sometimes maybe with a little acrimony, but like productive acrimony, you learn how to actually navigate yourself in the social world, and by replacing that by entire by having an entirely structured um, situation, we're not training people to live in a free society. Yeah, I'll add to that that. There's um, a lot of good things happen when people have the sense that there's peace and prosperity, um, that the pie is expanding, 
that the future is going to be better. People invest more in the future. They can put things off. They're more cooperative. Because, so this is like the difference between what I've noticed is like in Silicon Valley versus Wall Street. I, I work in a business school now. And, you know, in Wall Street, it's more of a sense of like a zero-sum game and I want to get the better end of the deal. And I want to, you know, whereas in Silicon Valley, in general, well, now it might be turning. But, you know, a few years ago when I started this, there was a sense of infinite possibilities. So it's, you're always like, oh, let's cooperate on this and who knows what it'll create. Um, and we've been, you know, for a long time in the, you know, in the post-war world, I think there were, not that it was always peace and prosperity at all, but there was a sense that things were growing and getting better. Um, there were brief turnarounds there. But when, in recent times, when we have more of the sense of things are threatening, the, the pie is not growing, and of course for many Americans their income has not been going up, um, there's a shift in psychology. You get much more zero-sum thinking. You get much less trust. I'm really concerned about the possibility of having a, sec a large, secular, diverse, a multi-ethnic democracy. It's a sort of thing that, by, you know, in theory, should not exist. But if you get the conditions right, it can exist, and it has existed. We were amazingly successful for much of our history. But, if, but there were a lot of forces that were kind of pulling us, to, keeping us together in the 20th century, with common enemy, you know, all, all sorts of things that were really binding us together, um, and a sense that things were getting better and there's progress. And I worry a lot that a lot of those things are peeling away. Social media is really amplifying the cleavages within us. The kind of identity politics we do on campus, which is common enemy, let's unite against them, um, is blowing us apart. Uh, I'm really concerned that the base, that, that, that the, there may not be a lot of margin for error in, in maintaining a large diverse democracy such as ours. If you're not all believing in the same God or descended from the same mythical ancestor, those are the traditional ways of keeping a society together. We don't have those. Um, so this is so things are really bad even before iGen or Gen Z is going to be coming into political power. In the book, we we muse on the dangers of however bad things are now. <laughs> just imagine a generation that was protected till it went to college that didn't get to learn the art of association. That to Tocqueville thought that part of the American miracle is that whenever there's a problem, we get a group together, we figure out how we're we gonna do this, we argue about it, we talk about it, and then we build the bridge or whatever it is. Um, it may be that Gen Z, when they rise to that position, they may be less able to do that. So if you think America's got problems now, <laughs> just wait, it might get worse. So you had some, I th thought, excellent advice for university administrators about some of the things, that, a new approach that they could take. What would you say to parents? What could they do differently to try to deal with some of these problems? So I think that, you know, Parents are caught in a, so it, it differs upper middle class and lower class. It turns out the parenting style is, it, we're not just talking about the top 10% here. It turns out parenting style is sort of middle class and above. So it's the majority of the country is being overprotective, overscheduling. Um, whereas working class and poor families are different. They have different threats. They're still very protective because there are more actual real dangers for their kids. Um, so nobody's really having a true free-range childhood. No group is really having a lot of free-range childhood. But the general advice for parents in the middle class and above who are mostly concerned that their kids be successful and bring prestige. That, you know, a, a lot of parents say they want their kids to be happy, but it's very hard to not be caught up in a prestige competition with those around you. So the reason why we're optimistic about this is because it's becoming increasingly clear if you want your kids to be successful, make sure they get enough vitamin P every day. Vitamin P is play, free play. Your kids have to have a lot of time when you're not supervising them, you're not telling them what to do. So if beginning at the age of six or seven, your kids have some time unsupervised. Now, in a physically safe place, in a park or playground, you can be kind of nearby or it can be at someone's house in the backyard. 
but they have to have time that's not organized activities and not on a device, not on a, otherwise they'll just go right to the screen. So I think it's becoming increasingly clear because of the rising depression and anxiety and suicide and because of the evidence of failure to launch. So we can say to parents, okay, you want your kid to get into college? Do you want your kid to get a job after college? Or do you want to move back with you after college? If so, don't over-schedule and don't over-supervise them. Your job is to work yourself out of a job. So back off. Yeah. The th one of the things we ended up recommending that I think at least came as a surprise to me um, was uh, we ended up recommending uh, inst culturally institution. We're not saying that actually the state should mandate this, but having a cultural expectation of a gap year. Because, you know, in law school, this was this could not have been more brazen, even just even back in the late 90s and uh, graduating in 2000, was that the students who didn't go straight through got better grades, generally were more mature. They didn't sort of, they, they could handle like going out and still doing fine. Fine, fine, in, fine in school. Um, now, if we could have an institutionalized gap year, it could take care of some of the loca locus of control, you know, in a, in a great model, it could actually be that they go and work a job in some other part of the country, so it could, could, be, good, be, could, could be good for polarization. But the fear is that we have a gap year and it suddenly becomes just another year of, of, uh, of helicopter parenting that allow for parents to actually continue to make their perfect rocket to Princeton. No, but the, no, but the, way, but so the way to do it, it's not that anybody can mandate this, mm -hmm. it's that so when we talk to university presidents, their job has always been hard. Boy, has it gotten harder in the last couple of years. They recognize that things blow up in their face all the time. They recognize there's a problem with this new generation. So if, if, the, the, top, if the most prestigious schools start saying, we will no longer give preference to the kid who has 17 extracurriculars. We're gonna give preference to the kid who has already shown that he or she can live independently, um, can uh, deal with people who have different ideas, uh, can tolerate ideas that might seem threatening. Um, and we're not, this isn't mean, doesn't mean that you went off to private school where you were overprotected also. Um, they're gonna say, we're gonna especially give preference to people who have either been in the military or done a year of national service in some other form or moved away from their parents and worked. We think the best thing for the country would be if the norm was if you live in a red, red zone of the country, you move to a blue place and get a job or vice versa. And not just you go look you know, for a classified ad. Like there would be all kinds of internship programs that would help you do this. But we think because the data shows that Jean Twenge in her book iGen, she specifically says, if we look at my developmental milestones, an 18-year-old today is like a 15-year-old 30 years ago. Well, we don't think 15-year-olds should have been in college 30 years ago. I personally don't think that 18-year-olds should be in college today. Obviously, many of them can handle it. But if the institutionalized expectation was, you take a year or two off, they'd be better off, college would be better off, free speech would be better off, the country would be better off. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be, you know, military national service. I know, and you know, lots of Mormon young people go off and yep. do religious service for a couple of years. That's right. Just get away from your parents. And That's the joke the is, thing. once they come back, their grades go right up because <laughs> they've learned some discipline. <laughs> oh, excellent. Okay. Um, so I want to turn the time over for questions, but before we do that, I really would like to chat just briefly about um, one of your concluding chapters in the book that I feel like you don't have a chance to talk about nearly enough. Um, you talk about social justice and the role of justice and, and how young people are thinking about that and um, a productive way to think about social justice. Now, some libertarians and conservatives will say there is no such thing as social justice. The fact that you even have to add a word to the front of it means that you're detracting from it and it's no longer justice. You have a slightly different view of that. I would love to hear your take. Yeah, sure. So, I, um, so I'm a social psychologist who studies morality. So I've, I've, I've read a lot about justice and the psychology of justice. And um, many libertarians, I think Thomas Sowell and, and Friedrich Hayek, critique social justice. You know, there's justice, and if there's something other than justice, then it's injustice. 
We're in a culture war in which you can tell within a sentence, you can usually tell, if they're talking about education, you can usually tell. If they're talking about, you know, uh, structural Marxist post, you know, or I mean, if they're talking about, um, you know, social justice is a bad thing and identity politics is a bad thing, then you know they're on the right. What we tried to do in the book is to say, if there's a movement, if there's a moral or political movement, they're almost certainly right about something. They're onto something. There's something that they're objecting to. And so um, what we did with social justice is we really took it apart and we said, okay, it's very hard to define and students don't really define it. There are a lot of different definitions. We said, okay, what is justice? And the psychology of justice has two big things. There are two big psychological systems in our minds. One is distributive justice. By the age of three or four, kids recognize that if we're doing something together, and one of us did most of the work, and one of them sat there and ate potato chips, then when the rewards come, that kid should not get anything, and this kid should get more. That's distributive justice. Everyone gets that across cultures from the age of three or four. That's very deep. So if a society or university or institution is violating that, that is a violation of justice. If the violation is caused by group identity, in other words, in other words we don't give equal rights to those people because they are black or immigrant or gay or whatever, then that is a violation of justice based on a social category. That's a kind of social injustice. So we say it's a useful term. The other kind is procedural. Um, people also from a late, slightly later age recognize that you have to have systems in place that people get to say their, say their piece. The system is responding in ways where the decision makers are not biased towards certain parties, they're impartial. And we, it really burns us up when we are forced to take part in, a, in something where the, the decision maker is biased against us. Those are violations of procedural fairness or procedural justice. So if a system is treating black and white defendants differently, that is a violation of procedural justice based on a social category. That is social injustice. So we say that there are two, so if, so we say if a system meets those criteria, it is distributionally just and procedurally just, then it is just. The problem we're finding is that many social justice movements and, uh, and demands are focused not on those two things, they're focused on out, equality of outcomes. And so they look at any system and they see if, you know, if 80% of the physicists are male, if 80% of the physics department, or 80% of, of the programmers at Apple, so in the tech industry, outside of the, outside of the tech, uh, the, the um, uh, coding jobs, it's roughly 50-50, male-female. But in the coding jobs, it's roughly 80-20, which is, so is that, is, that, is that systemic sexism? And if you're a social justice activist, the answer is yes, by definition, there's, a, there's an outcome difference. And what we try to show is that efforts to fix those outcome differences, when you don't inquire about the pipeline and you don't inquire about procedural fairness or anything else, they usually or often mandate violations of procedural fairness. This is the issue with affirmative action. If you're basing affirmative action just on race, most Americans consider that to be unfair, even though you're trying to fix a, a, an outcome disparity. So we're hopeful that by saying, no, social justice is a real thing. There are social injustices based on identity. But at the same time, those who say that it won't be just until everything is exactly equal in all categories, there's a middle ground. That's what we're aiming for in the book. Thank you. So let's turn the time over for questions. I think we have two microphones and a couple of things. Um, could you please state your name and your affiliation and form your question in the form of a question with the question mark at the end? <laughs> um, also, we might be able to take a question or two off of Twitter. So if you are watching online, you can use the hashtag Cato events. And if we can, we'll try to ask one of your questions. All right, right up here. Hi, Nigel. 
uh, Nigel Ashford, Institute of Humane Studies. Uh, how much self-censorship is there of professors? Is it something we can measure? And are there now some research topics that no academic will now research? Oh, thank you. I'll start, I'll start that one. Um, so at Heterodox Academy, if you go to heterodoxacademy.org, actually raise your hand if you're a professor in any way, shape, or form. Raise your hand. Okay, I invite all of you to go to heterodoxacademy.org and click join and join us uh, so that we become 2008 professors or something like that. <laughs> um, one of the things we've developed we call the Campus Expression Survey. And it, it's, so the, main, the first one is designed for students, but we're developing one for faculty. And what it asks is, um, how would you, you know, if, if there's a class discussion, a seminar class about issues of race or gender or politics or something non-controversial, um, how, how, would you, how open or free would you feel to share your thoughts on this if you disagreed with the majority opinion? So what so we're, we're trying to get at is what are people reluctant to talk about? Um, who is reluctant by race, gender, political orientation? And why? What do they fear? And the portrait that emerges is that students are afraid both of other students, socially shaming, and of professors um, who will give them a lower grade or, or rebuke them, um, that... Uh, students on, who say they're strongly on the left are the least afraid. Interestingly, in most of our research, students who are in the center or libertarian are just like or much closer to conservatives than they are to the, to the progressives. In other words, it's not just that conservatives are feeling reluctant, it's that anyone who's not progressive is feeling more reluctant. Um, and so we're developing a version of this for professors as well. I can tell you that it varies a lot based on the field. So in the humanities and social sciences, where we deal with more of these controversial issues and the students are more likely to call us out, there these concerns are much more common. It depends on the part of the country. So in the Northeast or West Coast, much more so than in the South or the, or the Rocky Mountain areas. Um, so those are the main things. We are studying it. There is at present no data, no nationally representative data on professors. There, I think there was a survey in the 90s, but that's outdated now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is one of the things, as a First Amendment lawyer, I, you know, I care a lot about data, but of course stories do matter. Um, you know, the fact that only a, you know, a handful of people were burned at the stake for blasphemy at a certain time is irrelevant if you care about, you know, uh, care about human rights. And as far as some of like, the real landmine areas that I've seen, somewhat unsurprisingly, um, we, we talk about Rebecca Tubell's case. This is a professor who talked about Rachel Dolezal, someone who uh, was a white woman who, who saw herself as black, um, and comparing that to the story of, of Caitlyn Jenner, who was transsexual, and talking about it from a very academic standpoint. And we talk about this in the book as a Durkheimian witch hunt, because it really was the case that people were being asked to denounce her, that the magazine was being asked to retract it. And it, it took on this um, really kind of um, uh, strong atmosphere, so, so much so that people were actually, who had signed the denunciations, were writing her and saying, I'm so sorry this is happening to you, Rebecca. Um, so we definitely see topics around that are pretty radioactive. There was a case, uh, I've, unlike I've ever seen in my career, um, in which Professor Gilly wrote a, um, an academic piece. It was definitely, you know, it had no problem with being controversial. That was actually indeed the point of the exercise. But he wrote an article in defense of colonialism. And it's the only paper I've seen retracted both by the, uh, by, by the institution, by the editor, and by the author due to death threats. And that was just, just this past year. Uh, and so, the, so you can at least understand why people are animated about it, but still, retraction being the new rebuttal 
model has been kind of surprising. The strangest one that I've seen repeat examples of both on and off campus have been something that you wouldn't think would be all that radioactive, which is when someone says that maybe men and women have different preferences for what they study. It doesn't really seem like that should be that radioactive to say that men and women are at least that, you know, there's higher levels of women signed up for veterinary science and there's higher levels of men uh, signed up for doing for designing video games. Shouldn't really be that much of a shock, but that one is actually probably the most commonly held um, a belief by most people that gets treated like blasphemy on, on campus. Also, you can, for those watching us online, you can use the hashtag CatoEvents to ask a question on Twitter. Lots of questions here, though. Let's go over onto this side right here. Um, there's so many. Um, on the, the very end, please. Hi, thank you for this. Lillian Clementi, Arlington, Virginia. I heard you talk about death threats. I heard you talk about a physical attack on Charles Murray and this lady at um, Middlebury. Alison Stanger. So one, that sounds like somebody is perceiving an existential threat that they've got to lash out to that degree. But also, if the purpose is to prevent violence and harm, and you're using violence to achieve that end, you got a problem, and I'm just wondering if if anybody on on the other side of the debate has addressed that. You know why it's okay to be violent to fend off a threat of violence. Okay. Yeah, there's a real blurring of the lines between violence and speech, um, and it's something that we've seen at FIRE since uh, since I started, um, but it wasn't taken all that seriously. That essentially hate speech, which of course is a very, you know, it has no legal meaning and is a very amorphous term and gets applied to things that nobody off campus would ever consider hate speech, um, is likened to violence and has been in, in different, you know, articles for a long time. It's only in the past couple of years, though, that we're seeing this argument have real purchase among students, and so much so that we even responded to an article in the New York Times claiming that, well, maybe speech can be violence. Essentially, the argument that, that the professor was making in this case was that speech can be very strong. Stressful, stress causes harm, therefore speech is violence. And we're like, that wasn't very persuasive to us. And I get on a lot of campuses, though. You, you, I almost always have you know, a student or a professor um, uh, bring up, at least every year, bring up the idea of kind of like, hey, this, this distinction between violence and speech, this is just an invention. This is just a social convention we made up, and we know words can be harmful, so why are we drawing this arbitrary distinction between violence and speech? And I'm just kind of like, okay, fine. For most of human history, they had it your way. <laughs> there wasn't a meaningful um, a, a distinction between expression of opinion and committing violence. That's why we burned heretics, made people drink hemlock, crucified people. It didn't work out all that great. And then we came up with this incredibly useful societal innovation where it's like, listen, you know what? We're going to actually treat opinions as off limits. You can have whatever opinion you want and it's distinguished now, for, uh, now from violence and we're gonna make a bright line distinction. So I say, yes, it's a social convention. Yes, it's an invention, but it's one of the most productive uh, inventions we've ever come up with. So we have a question from one of our online viewers. Do you have any helpful ally, unhelpful, allies <laughs> when it comes to highlighting free speech issues Everybody on campus. Knows. And I know exactly where this person is going. Milo, yes. Ianopoulos. Um, no, there's been many more. Yeah. And many more. But I, I think that that general question about kind of, it seems like some student groups will invite people to campus yeah. to purposely provoke. Yeah. So we're, we're in the middle, we're in a time of rising polarization. Um, the, the, the little 
blurb we have, the quote we have at the front of that chapter is, you know, is uh, Newton's second second law. Mm -hmm. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. But in a polarization cycle, for every action, there's a disproportionate overreaction. And if both (laughs) sides are doing it, you accelerate into escape velocity. And that's where we are now as a country. Um, And so, yes, we have some very unhelpful allies. Um, When Donald Trump began, the very first statement he said, when most of us tuned in at that first debate uh, back in uh, 2016, um, he said, there's too much political correctness. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, I don't want him on my side. Because, you know, because basically for two reasons. One, uh, so Trump and also the Department of Education are unhelpful allies, in my opinion. <clears throat> you might have a different opinion about this. But, just, but just, the reason is because, first, when the federal government tries to legislate things as they did with sexual harassment, it's a disaster. It's just not the right level. Of, they don't understand what's going on. And the second reason is because since almost, every, almost everybody is on the left, on campus, not illiberal left. That's the, this is an important distinction. Most people are liberal left. They believe in free speech. They're reasonable people. But there's a smaller group of illiberal left. When, um, if there's an, what is perceived as an attack from the right, what happens? That really strengthens the hand of the illiberal left. They could say, we're under attack. We have to resist with all our might. We have to use our pedagogy to you know, train the students to fight back. And so uh, the more the Republicans try to pass laws regulating what goes on campus, the harder my job gets. Yeah, um, yeah and definitely, obviously, you're, you're going to have un- unhelpful allies. And, but what, what actually, and I get this sometimes from, from my staff at, at, at FIRE, who's like, oh, I can't believe this person I despise just said an argument, and now it's coming from that person's mouth who I hate. Uh, my training for this, though, was great because I worked at the ACLU of Northern California in the late 90s, and I worked the help desk. And then you get to realize that it's kind of like no matter where you are on the political uh, p- political spectrum, there is someone you despise who agrees with you. <laughs> and and that's I, I kind of to some degree take that for granted. And the fact that people I don't like might agree with me on stuff is something that. And I think that that needs to be understood a little bit more. Is that the argument doesn't become polluted, doesn't become morally polluted because someone you d- you don't like agrees with you. Right. Well, I want you know, to think. I, so I, I should just clarify: um, it, it's, the Department of Education, as far as I know, is not trying to le- produce legislation here. It's more state legislatures that are doing that. I should just clarify that. Oh, okay. Um, I wanted to thank Matthew Feeney for that excellent question that he gave on Twitter. Just wanted to give some attribution. Thank you, Twitter. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. Here in the back, right there, um, in the middle. Bearded fellow. Just wait for the microphone. Hi, Jack Murphy. Uh, I have uh, two questions. Uh, The first one is, uh, in A Righteous Mind, you referenced the implicit association test as a foundation for for the book. And I was wondering if you had any comment on recent uh, discussions about the validity of that test. And two, uh, to what extent did uh, federal education policy contribute to the the victim culture and vice versa? To what extent would changes in Title IX, et cetera, have in remedying it? Okay, I'll briefly do the first one and Greg can do the second. Um, so, uh, yes, psychology is going through a replication crisis. Um, the IAT does measure something, but it now appears what it measures is not implicit prejudice. It doesn't predict behavior. It does measure implicit associations. It does measure what we, we all know, stereotypes we associate A with B. So it's not that it's worthless. It's just that it doesn't illustrate what we thought. So there are a few things I need to go back and revisit about the righteous mind and the happiness hypothesis. Um, studies of priming, especially, 
are, seem to be unreliable. So I will have to take a look at that. As a field, we're, we're trying to figure out exactly what, what is what. But you're right to be skeptical of parts of that. On the idea that basically emotions and intuitions tend to drive our behavior more than reasoning, I don't think there's any evidence that I was wrong on that. And I think the last couple of years pretty well illustrate that. <laughs> <laughs> and when it comes to Title IX, we do talk about this in the book, actually. We have a whole chapter called The Bureaucracy of Safetyism, which, which addresses this you know, in some detail. Uh, but so uh, my experience with uh, the relationship between federal law and speech codes, for example, um, starts in 2001 when I started at FIRE. Um, I knew some of the prehistory. Uh, but in my, for my first several years, um, it was a very common argument for general counsels to say that we passed this ridiculously broad speech code that I you know, know for a fact as a, as a lawyer would be uh, ruled unconstitutional. They, they excuse it by saying the federal government made me do it, that we have to do this due to Title IX. Now, this got so bad that the Department of Education in 2003, just two years after I started, issued a letter saying if you're passing something that, um, that bans just offensive speech, that is not what, what, uh, for us. You can't do it if you're a public college into the First Amendment. It was, it was a wonderfully clarifying letter, and it helped us. It didn't completely eliminate the argument by, by general counsels, which is kind of amazing when you think about it, that even the Department of Education saying, you can't do this with our name, and they were still making the argument. But, but it did help a lot. Uh, the sad thing was, so this was a boogeyman that largely wasn't, wasn't there. It was more of an excuse. But sometime around 2011, 2013, um, that's when we first started seeing a definition of harassment being promulgated by the Department of Education that simply extended... Um, uh, harassment, defined harassment as unwanted uh, speech of a sexual nature, specifically getting rid of the reasonable person standard. So if you merely experience anything as unwanted, it's automatically harassment. And we fire fought tooth and nail against this. And if we could get that argument into, if we could get that specific language into court, we were very confident that we could actually get it defeated um, because it's so much broader than any speech code we've ever seen. The, the uh, Department of Education actually has backtracked a little bit, but this blueprint, what they call the blueprint definition, is actually still out there. And the Department of Justice um, enforced it against the University of New Mexico, I think, a couple of years ago. So the role of federal regulation is that anytime something is a federal regulation, particularly if it's coming out of the Department of Education, um, it's not as if universe, they're going to overcorrect to try to actually fulfill the wishes of the Department of Education. So whatever they recommend has to be very clear and speech protective. There's just so many. I wish we could get to all of them. Um, I see right here on the end here. On the end right here. Yeah. Hi, thanks. My name is Christine Ellison. I'm at the University of Maryland. and been great to have you both there speakers in the past in the Smith School of Business. Um, I'd just like to briefly say that our President Wallace Lowe has done a great job modeling behavior for free speech on campus. Uh, but my question is really this. Um, have you been able to track students into the work world, the kind of students that you've been talking about now? Um, I teach in the business school, and one of the things that I've noticed is that um, they are very directed, um, and but they uh, you know, are concerned about going into the world of work. So I'm wondering if that transition may help them get over some of these fears that they bring into college. Yeah. Well, that's what we all thought were, was going to happen. When we published our, our article in The Atlantic in 2015, people said, oh, as soon as these kids get into the work world, boy, they'll have to give up this way of being. Boy, they'll toughen up. They'll learn what's what. And that turns out to be wrong. 
um, it depends on the industry. Any industry that hires a lot of graduates of elite colleges, it, turn, it, it appears that though many of them are taking the uh, uh, taking this, the, these attitudes about speech there. And so I'll just read, uh, we get this delightful Amazon review. Um, remember, iGen just turned, is turning 23 this year, so they've only been in the work world for one or two years. Um, and they're not really, so I teach in a business school, they're not really in business schools, but they're just arriving in law schools. Law schools, you take one or two years off typically, or sometimes zero. But here's a review from uh, Amazon. Uh, five stars. Um, I couldn't understand why my bright young workers kept running to HR for every little interpersonal problem and why they refused to show up to meetings with the person who they thought offended them. This book explains a lot about those recent bad hires. And I've heard this, uh, I've heard this from a variety of people who talk about just, just in the last year or two, their new interns, the people they hire under 23, are bringing this attitude that like, if somebody makes a joke and, and you overhear it, you don't just think to yourself, what a jerk, you go to HR, because that's what they've learned. They've become morally dependent. Again, it's not their fault, we did this to them, but they've learned that's, that's akin to an act of violence, I need to report it. Um, so it is coming into the world of work. From what I hear from journalists, it's, it's come in very, very heavily into journalism. Um, so basically the creative industries in particular, that's where those are likely to tip over to this new, these new campus norms very quickly. Uh, and I've heard a lot of horror stories from public interest law firms um, where, the, and I, I was expecting to sort of be attacked for some of the premises in the book. And what I actually got from some lawyers who remain unnamed is that you're absolutely right. Um, and partially because law firms are a little bit sort of like uh, some of the people who go to law schools are ahead of the curve, so to speak, on some of this ideology. And it was heartbreaking to hear because it sounded like these organizations that were designed to really help people people on the ground were turning into places that, that were primarily inwardly focused. Okay. I think we have time for maybe one or two more. I can, I want to get some in the, in the very back, let's see, right here in the back, second from the end. Yeah. Hi, I have, oh, sorry. Hi, I have two questions related to the idea of how my generation and people younger than, them th than me think. Number one is the question of privacy. I live in an era where if somebody posts something on Facebook and it gets reshared, they deserved it. They deserve to be publicly humiliated because they posted something. So many of my peers have this morality that if you post something publicly, then you deserve to be shamed and whatever consequences come, um, you deserve it. So the question one is, um, can you comment on uh, how to teach, in, in, in this environment, how to teach a new morality? And number two is uh, similar to the culture of my generation. And we, we will be seeing a new um, sort of fighting with international students, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. The international students are more mature. Um, this is at, at Yale. I'm from Yale, affiliation Yale. Um, so do you think there will be a time soon when there's sort of going to be a U curve, a U, a U curve, and a surge of racism, where the people who preach tolerance become racist to you know underprivileged international students from Romania, for example, uh -huh. for being the racist ones. I'll just say I, I don't think that I don't think that's going to happen. I think that the the progress towards greater racial tolerance is likely irreversible. What's happening is that people who have truly racist ideas are becoming more visible. And so, you know, there seems to be a surge of, say, anti-Semitism uh, in this country. 
you know, I'm Jewish. I don't think America is an anti-Semitic country. And the fact that Nazis now have, you know, they can, they can appear more numerous than they did a few years ago, it, it's not really a big change. So I, I think that the progress on racial tolerance is likely to not reverse. I, but, I, but I do think I know what you're talking about. My, my, my father's from Yugoslavia. He's Russian by way of Yugoslavia. My mom's Irish by way of Britain. Um, they could not disagree more on what politeness norms actually, actually mean. So I, my, my, my childhood was one big microaggression, <laughs> uh, essentially. But one thing that, I, that, I, that I, think, I think you're getting at, and that I see a fair amount of this, is that once you're deemed a bad person, um, by the by, the sort of social justice. Um, I don't want to call them warriors because I think it's kind of an overused activists. term, but, but activists. Um, that uh, that it's that it's fair game to say anything they want about you, which which is only ironic. It doesn't mean it's any less protected, but it makes it. But it's kind of amazing to watch. For example, when someone decides that uh, a woman is is conservative and not on their side, suddenly their appearance, their age, what they're wearing, it all it, it, it sometimes turns into this kind of weird feeding frenzy that kind of eliminates everything that they claim they stand for in terms of tolerance and open-mindedness. It become, it, it, I've watched this kind of feeding frenzy happen, so I do think there can be you know, potential for the eating of your own that looks Yeah, we're hopeful that the book will make it clear to everyone the dangers of a call-out culture. And I, I, if, we can come up, come, if we can come up with the catchy terms, that if somebody does that, you'd say, oh, you're being a caller-outer. Like, that's, that's <laughs> ugly. Like, okay, can that's not it. The, can like, if you come up with the right term that others can use to shame those who shame others or whatever, yeah. That might do it. Right. Yeah. I think we have time for one more question. Let's see if we can kind of up in the front here. Um, right here on the end. Um, sort of reminds me, my, my, uh, my son is in his late 20s, uh, three degrees in Miami League school. His biggest maturity thing was when he turned 25, and he had to start filling out the long form for income taxes. That was very maturing, and then he got a mortgage. That was really maturing. So I suggest when they turn 25, they have to fill out the long form and get, the, uh, and, the and get a mortgage. But in any event, my question really is this. Whenever there's one of these incidents on campus, like Charles Murray and, and some of these other things, you see it all over the, 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 the conservative news. Fox is going to be all over it. One America, America, you know, One America News is going to have it. They're all going to have it. And I heard a political consultant recently giving a whole thing about if you're running for office and that happens, you want to hit that all over the place because most people find it so offensive that it helps elect yep. More conservative candidates is one of the reasons Trump got elected. So it's having the exact opposite effect yeah. of what the protesters really want. Is your view, obviously it must be, that this is what you're seeing? Well, it, it's one of these interesting things. I'm very much with Mark Lilla. Um, when, when I first started doing this, because a, a lot of the problems we see on campus with regards to free speech have no particular political valence. And what's amazing is that the media doesn't pick those up at all. Even when we have stories where left-wingers are getting in trouble, which we publicize to high heaven, it's interesting that the New York Times is not interested in it, nor is Fox News interested in it. What, uh, um, but when we have a story that perfectly fits the sort of political correctness front of muck mold, it does somehow get in front of Fox News, of course, but also, weirdly, it gets better coverage on the, on the left side of the spectrum, too, which can be endlessly frustrating. But I do think Mark Lilla, um, who wrote a great book called The Once and Future Liberal, um, had it exactly right. That back when I first started doing TV, I was on MSNBC as much as I was on Fox. And generally, MSNBC was on my side, too, being pro-campus free speech. But as soon as some of these controversies happen and students are you know, d demanding that someone get fired for something relatively innocent they said, which happens, you know, 
pretty damn often. If it's not, um, you know, uh, Tucker Carlson arguing about it, but it's Rachel Maddow saying, listen, we should defend free speech, that could change things quickly. I just want to add that I think we have a great idea here. If we just have all eight-year-olds fill out the long form of the 1040. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to free up credit a little bit. Well, thank you very much. This has given us so much to think about. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book, and I think our audience will as well. Um, Afterwards, we're going to have a reception in the Winter Garden located here on the first floor. Thanks so much to our authors. Thank you. Thank you.